That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. Welcome to BS Beyond Stereotypes, a podcast about lawyers using their authentic voices to change the world. Never interrupt the person who's living the life that you said was impossible. I like that, right? And I like that because it stings a lot when people have put up their own barriers for themselves and then they see somebody else doing precisely what you said could not be done. BS Beyond Stereotypes. Here to BS with me today is Stephen Hunter. Stephen is an equity partner at Corals and Brady in Chicago, a business litigation lawyer. He's also the co-chair of the National Diversity Committee. Um, and uh, I have to start by saying thank you for joining us, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy that you thought I was interesting enough to make your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, as, as I have told people, and I think I may have told you this, I follow you on uh, Instagram. <laughs> and uh, in, addition to, in addition to already knowing you professionally, I feel like I kind of know you personally. And so that was, that was one of the reasons I, I thought um, that, our listeners would enjoy getting to know you, um, both personally and professionally, um, because I think that um, I, I find everything in, in the amount of things that you do and seem to be really good at fascinating. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll talk about some of those things, if you don't mind. Of course, of course. So, so let's start, though, with um, kind of, you know, who you are, where you're from. Uh, I, I know from following you on uh, Instagram that, you know, you attended Brown undergrad, Georgetown Law School, but you also attended boarding school growing up. Yeah. Um, so yes. Can, yeah. So can, military can school. Oh, military school. So this, this will be a surprise to anybody who does not actually um, you know, who knows me and my personality is always very shocked that I went to military school. Um, I went to a very conservative military school in Indiana, um, like politically conservative. That shocks people as well. Um, wow. And yeah, yeah like I had never been exposed to that. I, I went to Catholic um, elementary school in Chicago, in Hyde Park, right? That was probably... Wow. I want to say about 70% African-American and 30% all other races. Um, and we had lots of biracial children in my, in my classes. So it was, that was never a thing. Like I never knew that was a thing outside of, you know, outside of Chicago. And so then I right. went there um, because it was, I mean, the opportunities there are incredible. We had an airport on campus. <laughs> We had uh, on campus, right? Like an airport, we had a golf course, we had 150 polo horses, right? Like on campus, there are three wow. ice arenas in case you wanted to play hockey. 
We had a pre like hockey league. Yeah, it was nuts. So all Crazy. of those kind of yeah, all of those resources were there. Uh, and so, you know, my mother was obviously very impressed with it. I went to camp there and I enjoyed the camp. And then I got to the school and the school was good. I did not do well at the military part. Though. Um, <laughs> they still invite me back. <laughs> they still invite me back to do, to do alumni things. So they must, you know, half like me. But yeah, I was not very good at the military part at all. So authorities, that whole, you know, uh, uh, you were defying authority as a youngster. Is that what it was? I, so, and this is a theme with me. I have to, I don't mind taking direction at all if I respect your intelligence, right? And okay. this is why I work at a law firm, right? Because lawyers, you know, you can agree or disagree, but for the most part, smart people, right? Um, and for the I most usually, part. For the most part, right? Um, and so you're not taking instruction from someone whose intelligence, like, you don't respect, right? And this, you know, people thought that there would be racial issues. And one of my, I'm like, one of my biggest issues is actually with a black um, teacher, or not teacher, uh, like, one of the military people there, you know, I mean, and we just did not get along, right? And I, <laughs> one of the comments one of my friends told me the other day, he's like, remember when you told the guy, you know, he's like, you have a couch in your backyard, so we're not the same. <laughs> um, and uh, I did. I told him that in high school. And I meant that. Like, we're not, we're not the same. So, yeah, that so, was my, my high school Culver career. But academically, it was excellent. Well, yeah. And the exposure, the exposure, the things that you were exposed to, I'm sure – uh, influenced a lot of the things that we'll be talking about later that you've done and, and that you do. Um, but how, what was the contrast like between where you, where you grew up and where you were going to boarding school? I grew up uh, in downtown Chicago and most of my friends in the building where I grew up were Jewish. Um, and so, and there weren't a lot of Jewish people at, uh, Culver, except for one of my roommates, Elliot, who is the smartest person I've ever met. He went to Harvard. He now writes math books for Harvard. Um, <laughs> he right, uh, and he lives in Paris. He's just fantastic. Um, that was, you know, so I wasn't, and of course I was around black people because my mom was the principal in at a school in the Robert Taylor home uh, in Chicago, and you know my whole family, African American on both sides. Um, so I knew black people, but I had never been around kind of conservative, kind of waspy America. Um, and I, you know, I went to elementary school around, you know, it was 70% African-American, but it was, you know, blocks from the University of Chicago. Um, so that was the environment that I grew up in, very like urban, um, but not urban depleted. <laughs> um, but you know it was because if you say urban and everyone says oh you know he grew up deprived I don't want that to ever in the project right very, yeah I grew up very middle class right um, okay and yeah so it wasn't but I didn't grow up like the people at Culver grew up right like <laughs> so I didn't have a horse right <laughs> like I didn't grow up that way uh, like some of my friends did um, and you know Culver was was interesting and in high school, 
you don't even, I didn't even realize that what I was being exposed to. And in fact, every time I go back to the school, I'm like, oh, wow. And some of the things that I took for granted, like when I went to Brown, I assumed, and they laugh at me to this day, but I assumed there would be stable. Right. And I'm like, where are the stables? Yes. Right. Like, so Brown was actually, you know, step down. Kind of it was. It was, it was, it was, as far as like resources and the like. Let me ask you this. So when you you show up, so we want to talk about stereotypes and and I would, and and, and, uh, getting beyond stereotypes. And and I will say that one of the, I, I don't think of you as like a stereotypical, you know, a black lawyer or a stereotypical yeah. lawyer at all, because if when I think of you, what I think of is like the best dressed, most internationally traveled, you know, yoga teaching litigator in the U.S. and maybe in the world. Okay, so that that's that's and that to me is not right. Like, well, am I? Am I? I mean, so, so those things I mean, are all true, correct? But they're not serious. You know that this is not what you would expect. So, how often do you feel like you're overcome? You know, like people expect one thing and they find lots of other things. The, let me tell you where the dressing up comes from. Right. <laughs> I had to wear a uniform from kindergarten all the way through high school. Right, so the first time I ever got to like wear my own clothes was college, right? And so I was okay. determined to actually like what I put on. Um, and okay. so that's literally where that comes from. All okay. in response to like, I just, I enjoy dressing because I didn't get to do that growing up. Okay. But you're, I have to say you're very good at it. I look forward well, thank to, you. Right. to seeing what, what, what ensembles you put together. Yes, yes, yes. And I'm not afraid to take chances with that either. Exactly. And, and do you do, yes. and, and did you feel, always feel comfortable, once you became a lawyer, did you always feel comfortable doing that? Or did it take you a while to do that in your law firm and even in court? I always felt comfortable doing that. Um, one of the reasons I felt comfortable doing that is because of Brown, right? Um, unlike Culver, right? So I went to Brown, which is like the anti-Culver, right? Um, <laughs> there I learned that your appearance does not necessarily, you know, I, I went to school with kids with, you know, who were economic majors who had blue hair, right? And okay. they were brilliant, right? And so <laughs> once you figure out that, you know, people's expression with their clothes, and sometimes my expression is very conservative, right? Depending on where I'm arguing or who I'm trying to persuade, it's not always fun and flashy, right? Like sometimes it's, you know, it is very much, you know, the blue suit and the red tie and the, you know, this is, or, or <laughs> you know, in, in court in another country, it could be a whole other outfit, but it is very much, um, you know, this is what you are supposed to, this is, you know, trying to project a certain image. Yeah, yeah. Right. And because I'm African-American, one of the things, so talking about stereotypes, 
one of the stereotypes I presume that people have. I'm not sure that people have it, um, especially if you are, if you're, if you have a light personality, if you spend time, you know, dressing well, is that you don't have attention to detail and you're not um, intense with respect to the actual uh, case with respect to the actual facts. So that's one of the things. And being African-American and young, I don't get the benefit of the doubt, right? And so I think it's helped me be a better litigator, right? Because I, if there's ever a fact where, you know, someone has to interpret it in my favor, I have to do more research, right? Because I assume that they're never going to interpret these things in my favor. I have to have the answer. Um, in order, you know, like if I'm going to court and I'm saying, you know, Your Honor, you have to give us, or the other side had to give us these particular documents, I don't come in just with the statute. I come in with a case, hopefully where a judge has been overturned for doing the decision that's opposite of what they're supposed to do for me <laughs> or what I'm asking them, right? Because I'm not, I'm assuming that you're not going to just do this voluntarily, right? Right. Um, right. And some people stop at the, I've found the law, and I, I have to stop at the, you know, this is not the right way to go about it. So one of the, so, that's the way a stereotype has helped. Okay. It's, it's helped you because you know that it exists, and therefore yeah. you're prepared, you prepare for it in advance. Exactly. And so you walk in, and the, the people may be expecting that you're not going to be prepared, that, and maybe you look so sharp that that was all you thought about was how, right. you know, how you look. And then you, they're shocked when, you know, you kick their butts, basically. Yeah, that there's substance behind it. Like, I actually read all the emails, right? Like, <laughs> right, when people, right. you know, I think of the hearing where the you know, we had, a, I think it was the impeachment hearing in, uh, recent impeachment hearing of the current president where, where one of, in the house, where one of the people was asking a professor from, from Stanford, um, you know, well, you're just a professor. You haven't actually read the transcript. And she's like, I actually didn't eat Thanksgiving dinner yesterday. Right. Um, I, because I read all of the transcripts. Um, and, I think that sometimes that same perception, you know, with, with an African-American lawyer, certainly with someone who's younger, certainly with someone who might be, you know, dressed well, they assume that you spend all of your time on the flash and none of your right. time on the detail. Um, right. And that's not true. Right. Well, exactly. And, and that, that's why we want to talk about, you know, getting beyond stereotypes, right? Because mm -hmm. a lot of times, you know, because part of, part of what we're talking about too is staying authentic, right? We want to be yeah. authentic. I want to encourage people to live their authentic lives and be who they are so that they can have the self-confidence that they deserve to have to walk through life, right? And yeah. you can only do that if you're being yourself. But the point that you make is is so um on it's so perfect because you can be authentic you can be yourself but you but you, you need to recognize those stereotypes don't fall victim victim to them and overcome them right 
and also for me, the authenticity is realizing, uh, and Brown helped a lot with it, right? So I don't know if you know a lot about Brown, but we didn't have a core curriculum. There were right. like, I mean, no classes that you had to take. You could experiment with other things, but everybody there was really, really gifted in one thing, right? But they would take classes everywhere. Uh, but these things kind of melded together, right? And it gave you the courage to understand, courage. I can learn anything, right? Like I can learn anything. And so I have, I don't want to call it an obsession, but kind of an obsession. <laughs> like every time, every time, you know, so this is the thing. As African-American lawyers, probably just lawyers generally, but it feels like African-American lawyers, this happens a lot too. Um, you know, we're, we are in a competitive market where, you know, oftentimes we are being asked to compete with other people. Who is going to be the face of the company on this particular lawsuit, right? And in that transaction, in-house counsel, as well as, as well as business people can be as racist as they like, right? right? There is no law preventing them from saying, I'm not hiring this lawyer because he's black, right? There's, and, right. and usually it, it's never that, you know, I mean, people nowadays, thankfully, are not that aggressive, but there are these stereotypes right. that they have that they, you know, is he really, you know, should he really be lead counsel? You know, is he really capable of, of doing this particular case? Or this one is too important. Um, to let him handle. Can't someone, you know, who looks a little bit more like we are used to seeing, right? Um, that's the kind of competitive environment we're in. Um, sometimes it can get to you mentally, right? When you get passed over for things that you think that you should have, you should have gotten. Uh, and sometimes you start to believe, eh, you know, maybe I can't learn or, you know, they, oh, well, you haven't done this particular case 17 times before, and this other attorney who has had the opportunity to do the case 17 times before gets it. Uh, and you're right. like, well, why can't, you know, is, am I not able to learn, <laughs> right? Like, couldn't I learn how to do that kind of case? And so this kind of thing drives me quasi-obsessively to these certifications. <laughs> I'm obsessed with taking tests, right, and certifications. Right, so I am like one of the only people in the country who's ACEDS. This is like an electronic discovery certification. Um, one of the only lawyers in the country who takes this, who took this test. I helped write the test, but it was written for paralegals. I don't care. It's a test. It shows that I can learn stuff. <laughs> right. It reminds me that I can learn stuff. Right. Um, wow. We had a whole, you know, I very interested in yoga, took yoga classes for many, many, many years. Um, and I was sitting at an LCLD conference and, you know, I thought I would never have time to, you know, be a yoga teacher. That takes too much time. And I don't have that kind of time. I'm a partner in the locker room. And I'm sitting at LCLD and one of my fellow fellows um, says, oh yeah, well, I took six weeks off, you know, five years ago to become a yoga teacher in Bali. Now, I don't have six weeks to give, right? But I'm like, well, right. if she can be a yoga teacher, I can be a yoga teacher, right? And so I start looking up all of these things, you know, like weekend certifications, 
and manage to like find one that could fit my schedule and I could fit work around on the weekend. It wasn't every weekend. It was like okay. every other weekend. So I could actually get it done as well as work. Um, and then when I finished that, you know, I was very happy about that. I don't have, a, <laughs> I do not have a burning desire to teach yoga, oddly enough. Uh, I do practice it every day. Um, but I don't like the teaching. It is something that I do as a gift, but it's not something that I like is my burning passion. But what it did do was it taught me that, oh, wow, you have enough space if you really plan this out to do another bar exam, right? Because <laughs> people challenge right. whether you can learn, you know, like I had someone at that time who was like, you know, we were being tapped to do a trademark or a trade secret case. And I have done trade secret cases before. I've also done, you know, uh, temporary restraining orders. This was going to be a temporary restraining order. where We had to respond quickly. Um, they went with someone else at our firm who's good, never done a temporary restraining order though, but they had done, you know, trade secrets. And I'm like, is it not possible for me to learn that? I also heard of one of our good uh, colleagues who was uh, a good friend of mine who was going down to Florida and he was being asked to uh, be head of our corporate group in Florida. And he was taking some time off um, to take the bar in Florida in order to be able to do that. And me being me, I'm like, are we taking bar exams now, right? Like, we, Okay, so <laughs> I don't me, want you to tell that story yet. I don't want you yes, to tell that okay. story yet. We're going to tell that story later. So... Yes. Um, but, but what I do want, cause we're going to get, so now we're, now we're going to go international. Okay. Cause I talked about, right. we talked about best dress. We talked about yoga. Um, yeah. and like I said, I follow you on Instagram and, you know, until recently, <laughs> um, every time I saw you, you were someplace with a thing that, that really caught my eye. Um, one reason is because, um, I was a, 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 tennis player growing up. My father was a high school tennis coach. I, I noticed that you were a tennis player growing up, but I, what got me um, and gives me goosebumps is that you, for the most part, take your mother to Wimbledon every year, correct? I took my mom to Wimbledon twice. I took her to the U.S. once. Yeah. Okay. Because she, and so, she always... Yeah, so talk to us up. about that. Okay, so... <laughs> This had been gnawing on me for years. So growing up, I took tennis lessons from three years old all the way through high school um, or until high school. When I went to boarding school, I was on a tennis team. Um, and we would always, in the summer, watch Breakfast at Wimbledon. And my mom is an avid tennis fan. Uh, and okay. my godmother, who passed away some time ago, was a big tennis fan, too. My dad was, too, before he passed away. But I'm like, why are we always watching Breakfast at Wimbledon here, right? And we <laughs> could go watch it in London. And no one, you know, everyone now, it's too complicated. And this is, you know, one of my issues with I love my people, but this is what we do. We, we assume barriers that may right. not exist, right? <laughs> right? Like, people right. assume. I've been to all of the Grand Slams, right? People assume that this is an extremely costly endeavor. It is not, right? The French Open the first week, like you can go and sit on the main court 
and watch all of the best players the first week, right? Not the finals week for probably 150 euros for the day, right? And you get four or five matches for that. Right. Um, but people assume it's, you know, tens of thousands of dollars that you're paying. But so I would say, I was determined that I was going to take my mother um, to all of the Grand Slams. Um, so I've taken her to Wimbledon. I've taken her to the U.S. Um, I was going to take her to the Australian, and she doesn't want to go to him <laughs> to anymore. Yeah. Uh, Too, many bugs. Too many bugs in Australia. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. She's like, who's sitting on a plane for that long? Wow. So, well, so, yeah. I, I, so, well I, I really appreciate that. My, my, my best uh, tennis story um, or family ten, tennis story, like I said, my father, my Father started playing tennis when he was in grad school. He, you know, grew up in Oklahoma, went to Tuskegee, um, you know, African-American, taught himself how to play tennis, played in grad school, attended grad school, which is crazy. But um, he was a a high school tennis coach. and, And I started playing tennis when I was in junior high school. And when I was in high school, I, I saw in the paper that um, Arthur Ashe was going to be at, the, at a tennis, uh, at a mall in Orange County. And it was dur- during the week. And, you know, Orange County, there are no black people in Orange County, especially right, right. <laughs> and, and it was during the week. Um, which meant, you know, no kids were going to be there because you have to be in school. And I showed this to my father and I said, I really want to meet. And he was going to be hitting balls with people. And so my father took off work and took me out of school and took me down to Orange County. And we stood in that line so that his baby could hit balls with Arthur Ashe. Wow. And yes, and that that's, you know, that's one of those. And that's why I get, you know, goosebumps when I see you and your mom doing these things, because, Mm -hmm. you know, these are the kind of things that you never forget. And and like you said, if you if you uh, if you don't challenge the barriers, you'll never do them. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And my mom is older, like she's she's 84 now. So, you know, I don't have forever um, to make sure that she was, you know, that I was able to take her to those things. So, you know, that was, for me, that was really, really, really important um, that since she spent all of that time and energy making sure I got to tennis and she will always tease me um, about the fact that, you know, I was never good enough to actually make it into Wimbledon. (laughs) So (laughs) I had to take her to be a guest. Right. That's awesome. Let's talk a little bit more about being authentic, staying authentic, um, how that, how that, um, what that means to you as a lawyer. How, how does that translate for you in a big firm? Um, do you, do you uh, encourage young lawyers, you know, to, to be like you, or do you say, don't be like me? You know, how how do you deal with that? I think really is the the courage to pursue kind of your your own interests. Um, right. What I think, and I think a law firm is a phenomenal place to do that. Um, 
probably one of the best places to do that because all your, I mean, you're literally sitting around thinkers all day. Um, the hard part is trying to figure out, carve out time to grow both in the actual skills of the practice as well as something else that you're interested in. But I think if you don't have both, you're going to burn out. <clears throat> um, so it's, you know, saying that, yeah, I have to take on, you know, I want to take on the, in, you know, a yoga teacher certification. And I know people who've done this with children, by the way, because that's one of the things people always tell me, oh, you can't do anything if you have kids. And I'm like, not true at all. Um, right. Like a friend of mine who's a psychologist, she says, you know, never interrupt the person who's living the life that you said was impossible. I like that. Right. And I like that because it stings a lot when people have put up their own barriers for themselves and then they see somebody else doing precisely what you said could not be done. Right. If you had just put in a little more effort. Or a little more. Or if courage, you just believed right? in yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. courage is, yeah. is this this idea that you know we're do, making all our choices from a place of fear, as opposed right. from a, you know a place of courage. You know, I think yeah. it's, I think it's pervasive, and, and and if you can just switch that, you know, just flip that switch and say, you know, I'm going to have the courage to do this. I think also your passion and your profession do not always have to be the same thing. Right? Right. Um, I think a lot of people are spending a lot of their time trying to merge, um, you know, this is what I'm passionate about versus this is my profession. And sometimes your profession empowers your passion. Or pays um, for it. <laughs> or right, right. Um, so... <laughs> And, and you may not even know, like, what I think about um, often, and there are other examples of this, but I couldn't, the one that I keep thinking about is Steve Jobs, right? Like, Steve Jobs, obviously, business person, you know, not, actually not nearly as smart as some of the other folks on his team with respect to computers. He had someone to do that. But what I find fascinating about him is he was a calligrapher. Right. I mean, he knew how to write these really, really, and spent a lot of time learning how to write these really, really ornate letters, uh, et cetera. But it informed how he made products. Right. To him, it wasn't done when it was functional. The product had to be pretty. Pretty. Okay. Right. It did. And so, like, the same way he took letters and took them from being functional to being art is the same way he transitioned that kind of thinking into his product. And we take them for granted now, but they are very sleek. He didn't have like the disk drive, for example. Like that was the thing. Everybody had to have a disk drive. And he has none because it didn't right. fit with the form <laughs> that he it didn't fit with the aesthetic. And for him, the aesthetic was important. Yeah, as right. the functionality. Now, how did he know like being a calligrapher <laughs> had nothing to do with where he wanted to go? Right. Right. But, but learning but the that skill. Yeah. Yes. Right. And so that's what I'm, that's what I am encouraged by when, when I pursue things that have nothing to do or don't seem to relate to the way I'm headed. Um, you know, I am thankful to have 
partners who are, by the way, I didn't even take any time off to take this other bar, but who are like, you know, he just, he does his thing. They have, they have patience, <laughs> right? They so, have okay. Patience. So let's they, go there. Let, let's go yeah. there. This is a great story. <laughs> and I will, mm-hmm. I will, um, I will say that, um, again, watching, uh, looking, uh, on Instagram and there, you know, one morning I, I looked at it and there you are, you know, in, in a, a UK regalia, you know, like a, a, is it a solicitor or a barrister? And I'm so, like, yeah, what the heck? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, right. Tell, so, okay, so t- tell us that story. So, yeah, so we're here and we're at, you know, one of our, this is kind of a conglomerate of things, right? Um, we are at a partner of mine is is being asked to run you know the corporate group in one in our in our florida one of our florida offices i am turning 40 and i am you know thinking you know what to do with kind of the next next aspect i've always considered getting a license maybe in california or but i've always in the back of my mind thought about what would it be like to get a license to practice in another country. Um, And I'm like, that would be impossible, right? See, I built a barrier myself, right? Right. (laughs) Um, But I'm like, just look. So I looked and I'm like, no, there is a route from the United States to be able to qualify, but it's ridiculously difficult, right? Like you have to take, you have to take a qualifying exam that's the equivalent of our bar exam in the United States. And then you have to take a seven-day practical exam in the United wow. Kingdom where you have to – it's eight hours a day where you have to do every single practice group, right? So you have to sell a flat in Yorkshire or, like, you know, you literally have to go on <laughs> With an accent? Yes, with an I did my best not to have an accent when I was there, but sometimes I made one up. Um, but <laughs> – you have to be able to you handle someone's probate estate. They literally will have a client come in and they're videotaping you and they have a problem and you have to be able to like know the statute and handle their probate estate all the way down to telling them what their inheritance tax exposure will be, right? Wow. Like literally calculating. Yeah, they're really serious um, about being a very good lawyer. Uh, in the United Kingdom. And so very, 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 very difficult process and tough, tough, tough to study for, especially when you're not taking time off, um, you know, and having a regular practice, like literally on the night when I would leave taking the exam for eight hours, I would come back and have all of this stuff to do for work, um, you know, in the United States and then try to study for the next day as well. So wow. that was, I would never repeat that <laughs> period <laughs> ever again because it was ridiculously difficult, um, but so worth it, right? Like, so, you know, I, you know, it is, it was, first of all, I learned so much about like law generally. I have, we have an international group at our firm. I knew, you know, and I've always done international arbitrations. I've done them for kind of probably the last Definitely the last half of my career, I first cheered them. Um, the first half, I second cheered them, but they never actually got the hearing. I've actually done some in China. 
and some other jurisdictions around the world. But I was saying no one is ever going to really take this black guy seriously when I'm only licensed to practice in Illinois and in New York. Right. And if you really want to be, and I don't speak any other languages fluently, right. I speak Spanish or French, but not enough to take a bar or be licensed there. We have a large German group at our firm and they are wonderful uh, with me and to me. And they're always tapping me to handle their cases, but there's only so long that I'm able to contribute really uh, without bringing some kind of foreign aspect to the group. Uh, and so right. this is my investment in myself, right? This, was, this is, again, one of the stereotypes. I do think that other people would have the benefit of the doubt in that situation. And just because they have done this kind of thing over and over, people would select them. But for me, because I'm African-American, I have to kind of go above and beyond to show that I even want to participate in this group. Well, I would say that that is above and beyond, but congratulations. Thank you. Uh, tip, tip, oh boy. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. And so, you know, it's, I am already getting, I have to finish, you know, all of my forms and the like, but it's already proving, you know, uh, useful. People have, okay. you know, questions about EU stuff and, you know, things like that, that normally, uh, would go to other lawyers, and now I'm able to answer those questions. So tell it's us about the, tell us about what you have to wear, because that's one of our themes in this podcast. Okay, okay, right. <laughs> interview. What you let's have to wear. About, so let's talk so, about the yeah, outfit. Yeah, yeah. So it depends on which <laughs> depends on which court you're you're practicing in, right? So the county court, uh, you wear regular suits, just like everyone else. And most listeners are county court um, solicitors, if you take the advocacy exam, um, which is a, another exam, uh, which qualifies you to practice in the high court, uh, which is in London, it, it really is a lot of, most of our states have a separation of like, you know, law division for disputes over 100,000 um, pounds. Mm-hmm. Those go to high court. Uh, and when you appear in high court, if you're, if you're an advocate, uh, you would wear a solicitor's robe as well as the solicitor's cover, which is the, the wig. Um, okay. And it's especially, it's a special wig for if you are um, your first, you know, 20 years or whatever have you until you're asked to become you know, Queen's Counsel, if you're ever invited to be Queen's Counsel, which means you're more senior level counsel, and then you get a different wig. It looks like a little fro. Um, so there, it does, it does. Their system of, uh, of litigating is different than ours, like normally, but it's kind of becoming similar. Normally, or traditionally, I should say, a solicitor would handle the case all the way up until it got ready for trial. Right, so all of the motion okay. practice and the whatever have you would be handled by a solicitor. And solicitors traditionally sit at large law firms, right? So all of the places where you, you know, normally would think that dispute counsel would work, that's generally where solicitors were. Once it got to the level where it was going to go to trial, um, then it would be transferred to a barrister, right? And barristers do not go to law school. They specialize in one area of the law and in advocacy, Right, so you would have like a labor and employment barrister who wouldn't know anything about any other area of the law, um, but 
whose only job is to present cases ready for trial, right? So they don't work with clients at all. They own their only clients are solicitors. They cannot even accept clients from the general public traditionally. Um, and, you know, they have to be hired by a solicitor, but they're, they're paid by case and they just go from case to case to case to case, trying different cases. Um, solicitor wow. advocates, uh, which is what I tested to be, um, are really traditionally litigators. So they're solicitors who can do the barrister's job too, right? And so you would follow um, the client the same way we do now from the inception of the dispute all the way through to if it has to be tried in court. Well, and I'm there are impressed. no. But, thank you. Thank you. I, I'm impressed. Is, I'm impressed. I I think that um, you know you talk about loving to take tests and and going above and beyond and wanting wanting to be the best. I mean, I I can't think of uh, of a better illustration of um your of work ethic and and courage than than that. There's okay. one question that I always ask everyone. Um, and um, I hope that, um, and I'm sure that this relates to you. We haven't talked a lot about it, so I, I, I want to ask you this question. Um, what role does diversity, inclusion, and equity play um, in how you walk through life, either professionally, personally, or both? Um, well, I've, I, I, it allows me, I think, to grow daily um, because aside from being the beneficiary of diversity, equity, and inclusion programs and, and considering those things, as a co-chair of the national committee um, and as someone who has kind of experienced this and talked about these things throughout my entire career, um, I learn all the time, right? Like I learn that I don't know uh, what it means or the pressures that are involved with being a woman in the workplace, right? I, right. I so diversity, equity, and inclusion means that I get to take blinders off every day. I get to learn uh, what it means to, to, or try to learn what it means to live someone else's experience daily uh, and to try to see what makes them tick, what makes them um, perform at their optimal level and how to best get opportunities to them um, so that they can show that they can do well. Um, I think, you know, I, in my mind, again, and this will match up kind of with my experience, if you just let diverse lawyers learn, there's kind of this like, idea that if you haven't done the case 25 times before or the transaction 25 times before that you're not going to be as good as someone else but if you're never given the chance right that other person had to do their first one too right exactly and it, and is, exactly you know this is how we always get locked out of opportunities right and and you know the clients want to say it's the, the firm and the firm wants to say it's the client but at the end of the day, regardless of who it is, we are still um, at a place where we're not getting the chance, right? And 
that for me is kind of my my legal mission is to is okay. to try to figure out how do you match up our really talented lawyers with the opportunities because I know right. that they will do well right I know that they will do well if they're not hamstrung but it is just so hard to match people up with with opportunities and for me that's what kind of the work going forward in diversity and inclusion is about. It's about, you know, it's about getting everyone access to the opportunity to, to learn um, on, on the new work. <clears throat> well, and, and so, and I, and I think that's, that's admirable and I'm, I'm so glad that you're doing it. I guess the question that comes to mind for me is you've managed to do it. So what, what makes you different? So this is what I tell people. <laughs> I don't, like, my, it's going to sound egotistical, but I have a small ego, right? <laughs> so I don't mind not being people's first choice, right? I don't. And in fact, I'll tell people, you know, they, how did you survive at the other law firm? And I'm like, you know, when people were leaving and all that disgust, the people that they chose, right, and who were saying, I'm going to a different firm, I would, on the way out, ask them what they were working on and get up to speed on the stuff they were working on <laughs> and then literally go into the partner and tell them, I'm up to speed. Got it. Right? Wow. I was rarely anyone's first choice, and I don't mind it, right? Because I'm like, for me, it's survival, right? And so okay. I don't care that you didn't pick me first. Some of my best working relationships came from, you know, being someone's savior after their golden child left them stranded. Right. Yeah. Interesting. And it, it is, yeah. I mean, sometimes it is putting that, you know, that pride aside, knowing full well that they would prefer to have someone else, especially when people leave the firm. I mean, I get lots of work <laughs> that way um, because the people that, you know, one thing that, you know, this is very stereotypical of African Americans, but we are, in my experience, very loyal, right? And so you yes, give us, yeah. you know, an opportunity, and we are loyal even to a fault to where yeah. we work, right? And so, and that yeah. that goes for me too. And sometimes I'm there longer than there than the people who they thought were their golden children, right? And sometimes right. being the one who's like, "Yep, I'm around to clean it up," and I won't even mention it. Uh, moving forward has helped a lot. Wow, that's that's saying a lot coming from a, a litigator. <laughs> it is, and it takes a lot. I'm in a lot of poses trying to keep that, <laughs> trying to keep that uh, mentality. I, I sit in a lot of shape trying to, <laughs> to maintain that, but um, it, it's helpful because sometimes you have to be that bridge, right? Like your clients aren't getting along. It's the only thing you can offer is a bridge to opposing counsel that maybe you would be able to resolve this. Shouldn't you be able to play that speed too? Right. Right. You know? Well, Stephen, I have to say, this has been so much fun. I knew that it would I've had a blast. be. Um, and, you know, remember I, I, I told you, I called you or sent you an email once and said, I think we should do a fashion blog together. I still think we need to do that. Uh, I do too. Um, <laughs> but I just, I'm glad that this was our first four way of, of doing something together. And I'm 
so, so happy that you agreed to, to, to BS with me a little bit today. And I'm sure that our listeners uh, learned a lot from your experience and just your philosophy on life. So I just want to say thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure um, to chat with you and looking forward to chatting with you in the future. All right. Thank you, everyone, for for listening. And until the next episode, remember that everybody is different, and different is good. Hit it. That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. We hope you enjoyed the stories shared in today's episode of BS, Beyond Stereotypes. Join us next time when another authentic personality unleashes their uniqueness on the world.